0: Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, Tori Turk and Carl Williams. Tori is an independent exhibition curator, specializing in style and popular culture. She's also head archivist and creative lead at the world's largest magazine collection, the Hyman Archive. Tori's also worked on major exhibitions at Somerset House, including print matters, and has managed major archive projects for hairstylist Sam McKnight and makeup artist Charlotte Tilbury. Carl is the owner of Carl Williams Rare Books, a purveyor of books and other paraphernalia. For instance, he's recently sold a series of 1970s handmade protest posters reacting to the Cambodian War from the Berkeley Protest Poster Workshop. He was previously head of the counterculture department at London's Mags Brothers Limited, one of the longest established antiquarian booksellers in the world. On the agenda, archives. Why selling fakes is sometimes okay and trying to predict the future.
1: I mean, our main mission is also to preserve the rights and the work, uh, the blood, sweat and tears, as we say, that's gone into the production of the 10 million plus pages that we hold. So that's our, our, that's our mission. And it's been really tough and, like, you know, we are obsessed with the physical and the digital. By no means do we want to destroy any magazines that we only have one of and through the digitising process. And essentially, you know, we want to celebrate all the work that's gone in to that.
2: Your last remark reminds me of um, it's been turned into an anecdote, but it's based on a true story. There's a very large, um, incredibly large library in in America, and it has many branches. And they decided some time ago, before you could sort of talk about digitisation proper, that they would get their pamphlet collection and um, and that they would, you know, turn it into film or whatever. You know, find some way of storing it that's not you know paper, and that the pamphlets themselves would become superfluous so they actually destroyed the pamphlets in the process yeah. of doing them and they all the, the techniques that they were using were so invasive mm. and they were getting these saml bands of pamphlets and breaking them open and destroying the unity of how they were collected and why they were collected and and then they threw i don't think it was 900,000 or 90,000 of these pamphlets on the be careful i don't say the city on the city dump and a. Uh, and a customer of my acquaintance, like this meta collector, this incredible guy, called Michael Zinman. <laughs> he was in the waste disposal business. He was in sort of caterpillar business. And he, um, one of his guys told him that this had happened. And he, he got a lot of them. And I think he sold most of them back to them. Oh, because, of course, the means that they'd used to, uh, to copy the pamphlets had become obsolete very quickly. And it hadn't been done very well, so they were in this ironic position where he was selling all of these pamphlets and really you know he produced a poster and everything you know to really ram it um the stupidity of what they'd done
1: it reminds me of a um, there's a Ben I think Ben Lewis documentary the google Google brain where they they show what Google did to um, in the digitization process of Books and magazines and pamphlets and basically, you know, they were raiding libraries and coming in like heavies and digitising content. But you could see that they were doing it so sort of um, without care and and you well, it's see thing, yeah, and you could see fingerprints and they were kind of. I don't mind
2: those. I think that's cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but hands cover, you know. Well, yeah, maybe it's cool in a different way. But in terms of copying the the content, so it's so you can read it and use it as a research tool. It becomes a different thing if you've got someone's hand in sure. there. It becomes a kind of, yeah, completely different object.
2: But perhaps that's what people will collect and be interested in in the future, is the gestures around
1: books. Yeah, yeah definitely. You say the that. The
2: behaviour around books.
1: Yeah, it's the same with clothes. I mean, with garments and dress history, um, and, you know, sometimes that wine stain and you know that mark becomes I saw Trotsky's I saw
2: the uh, newspaper that Trotsky uh, bled out on when he was uh, when an ice pick was inserted into his head in Mexico
1: how do they prove that kind of thing
2: well exactly (laughs) so the story was nice and it's in Harvard and I've touched allegedly Trotsky's blood but I mean I mean they could actually take a sample now and find his nearest clear you know living relative and I guess they could I mean I think that's quite interesting when you're getting into forensic, to, you know, proper criminal forensic, and biological forensic techniques to establish provenance and um, habitus or whatever. I think that's wonderful. Really but fascinating. So,
1: because so when you're selling particular objects that have these stories, like, embedded in their kind of material culture, do you have to prove anything to anyone? Because obviously those kinds of things will help with the value. and Yeah, and, the, yeah. and what, I
2: mean, sometimes it, it's just law, lore, L-O-R-E, you know, it's law. And you either go with it or you don't go with it. I mean, you try and nail it down if you can find a photograph, of course. Um, If you can find, you know, a reference in a book to it. If it has a little label, a little tag on it, you know. I mean, sometimes I've bought things because the provenance and the story was so spurious that I just loved it. Yeah. It was such a, you know, like I (laughs) I bought this little tobacco pipe which was broken in half attached to a piece of card with a little stenciled American flag on it, it was really knackered up and it was supposed to be um, the leader of the, uh, it was supposed to have been the opium pipe, pipe belonging to the leader of the Philippine revolution against the Americans in the Philippine war Spanish-American war and it was so obviously absolute rubbish but it was of the time and you couldn't smoke opium through it because you know it just wasn't physically possible to smoke opium through it and I loved that I absolutely loved it my mm. boss at the time who was a Colombian collector called Julio Mario Santa Domingo the Monday, Braga yeah. the second Harvard yeah he um, he was like you know Michael has told me you know he had another guy who worked for him well worked with him far more important than me in a way Michael Horowitz and, uh, and Michael had seen it on eBay or wherever I'd seen it or some auction and he said uh, but it's just not true and I was like yeah but you know, mm. look at it it's <laughs> incredible isn't it I mean that's the story
1: that's the myth
2: that's the story and it's still about drugs
1: yeah Yeah,
2: because he collected drugs it's still about drugs I don't I think that might be in Harvard now I think it is you know I found that quite interesting you know the spurious I mean I I don't intentionally collect fakes don't get me wrong Mm. because I find that a bit crass you know fakes museum of fakes but to stumble across them interesting ones yeah Scabby little remainders that you know, this had obviously been in some little private museum in the Philippines for a hundred years, and you know, and the locals had touched it, and it had almost a sort of fetish type quality about it. It'd been touched so much, it was in such a mess.
1: How do you record the kind of information well, you around your, your software? B- you that's what you and how do you is it your 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 how do you write it from your voice? Is it like a
2: I might go, I seem to have. Less so now, but for a while I seem to have the voice, if you might say it, the internal voice. Even though I speak like a concrete labourer, the concrete labourer I am, I seem to have this internal voice where I'm a a very punctilious um, grammar school teacher who (laughs) wants to get it correct, you know. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you feel like a kind of responsibility then, therefore, because you're recording these things?
2: Sometimes. I think with Thelio Santo Domingo stuff, yes. I now realise that. and I think that... um, I went, I've gone through quite a lot of internal turmoil, you know, in the sense of is it that I'm a solipsist? Is it that I'm egotistical that I keep thinking about this guy? And then it struck me, you know, I was just like, this guy was incredible and what he was mm-hmm. doing was incredible. And there's nothing like it. There really is nothing like it. You know, he's up there with, you know, the great collectors of history like Phillips and,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that geezer who wrote that science fiction novel, what's he called? You know, he's up there. He mm-hmm. really is. Okay. You know, and it's not just about money, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: Although he had a lot of money, I guess a lot less when he met me.
1: Because I guess my process is very different. Because I am literally doing a kind of cold, clean archive um, inventory.
2: Well, it's the same. You you know, it's pretty. I mean, there's always traces of things. Because I mean, you know, you can go onto a CLC and you can find actually ninety-five or ninety-nine percent of the things that you're cataloguing. You can find some of the records somewhere. It's not bare bones, is it?
1: No, no, not at all. No, and, but but what's interesting is that I say that that's what I do. You know, I, I I've actually kind of sort of.
2: It's very noble, you know.
1: Yeah, handed the baton over to an assistant, but um, James, who I work very closely with, um, the owner of the archive, he documents everything. Um, but through video because through, I mean he was a essentially yeah he was a broadcaster and he's obsessed with documenting all the stories and, and it's not just um, the creators of the magazines and we get you know we do get the, you know David Hepworth would come in and look at uh, you know the, the magazines that he's very much been involved with and we get lots of people um, Barry McKinley sort of saying I wrote a letter to the head of the PPA saying I wrote a letter to the enemy," and wow. when I was 12 can you find that letter and we find you know and it's it's great because we and we build those stories onto the back of what we do but James also films all the people that donate so we have these amazing people who've been collecting magazines for various different reasons over the years and due to the very nature of the fact that they're you know they take up space and people need to you know have room for other things apart from collections of things as they get older and um He documents all these stories, like kind of seen as this final resting place for magazines, magazine heaven, because a lot of people have tried to give them to libraries and universities and they don't want them, you know? And so I guess the value... Well,
2: it's not that they don't want them because
1: they're... They've got them already. Um, I think a lot... the British
2: Library does. The
1: British Library, I mean, we did some diligence into what we have and what they have, and they they don't have 55% of what we we have in terms of titles
2: but then you have to think about what the purpose yeah of and their email of collecting
1: is. and whatnot yeah but exactly so but essentially they still you don't get want that. them and and sometimes we see some magazines become more interesting uh, the longer we have them and the more that we've discovered within the within them but like we had a lady whose husband passed and he'd been collecting athletics weekly since the the 40s yeah. and in it is weekly and so when he passed, she didn't know what to do with them. I mean, I don't think she particularly liked running or athletic. You know, she just had nothing to do with them and no one wanted them. But she saw the Hyman Archive as a place where they would live on yeah. and they would join their friends. And yeah. his, you know, and, and so we record those stories and they become really important so you're to you're all our Jap- journey. you're all
2: Japanese about them, Shinto. <laughs> They have little they, personalities. They, yeah, they have they, little, that's the hoarder, you know, isn't it? That's the psychology of the hoarder—that everything's alive, speaking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> animism. Yeah, but then how interesting!
1: But then James hates be called a hoarder.
0: You're listening to Thought Starters with rare bookseller Carl Williams and curator and archivist Tori Turk.
1: We visit a lot of universities saying like, you know, when all this is digitised, do you think that this would be a subscription that you would think about taking out for your various institutions, universities and strands? And they say, yes, you know, we, we think it's, it's a real paradigm shift in what we currently have. And um, I could When I was studying, I looked at, you know, I would flick through magazines one page at a time and go through decades to try and find just little snippets of information that would help me uh, answer a question. And the thing is, when we're digitised, when everything is available in this searchable form, it will become very easy to answer questions that a lot of people's thesis will be looking to answer. You know, how has the miniskirt changed you know females role in society when looking in Europe between 1985 and 87 you know something really straight you know and, really and I think that's
2: wonderful that you can do a concordance because that's what you're saying isn't it yeah. you put a word in and you find it you know you can concord it either semiotically or using images yeah. you know you could image search and you could create a concordance of everything in it but I'm kind of old fashioned I, I I'd use that a lot obviously course I do all the time I gut and fillet things you know because I have to you know and I've got commercial ends you know they're not noble ends they're commercial ends but I do feel that there's there's something about reading physically reading and I'm not actually I'm not a book lover I'm not a book sniffer you know so don't worry but you know there is something about reading the entirety of a book or large chapters of a book to get the entire context of something and that's what I feel at the risk of sounding preachy I feel about when I see digitization, I mean, we we both went to the same college and it's changed over a lot, me and David, and it's changed over a lot over the years. And the one thing they taught us to do was to gut and fill it things. Yeah. You know, like you get a book and you gut it and you fill it, yeah. You know, you get the what is out, but they would also recommend that you read the introduction and the conclusion. You know, yeah. you get, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the gestalt, That's the it. entirety of it. And I think that that, that approach towards, not, not that you're wrong, no, but no. I, I do find that there's something missing, you know, that people don't get the whole story, the sense of it, you know.
1: I agree, but when you've got this competing answer, you know you've got a digital uh, data-crunched answer to difficult questions sure. that people will be trying to answer. Sure, you know over two years of um, education and research, and you've still got that. You know, you may have a different answer through, like you said, gutting the, a book and a magazine and over over a period of time, going doing your you know intense research and. But, but it's
2: not intense. What I mean is, it's like to to read, you know, like. I'm not saying you're advocating this, but I have found that with digitisation, there's this ability to know everything and not really understand any yeah. of it.
1: We get given a brief to actually curate an exhibition using the content from the magazine, and um, Southbank Centre <laughs> approached us. And they do it; they every year they have a festival called Being a Man (BAM) Festival, and they asked us to um, curate a small exhibition on masculinity. in magazines perfect yeah (laughs) it makes sense yeah Yeah. and and obviously you know for us what was we thought about how are we going to do this like so
2: again the body
1: it's very it would it was it's it it became a very visceral process in selection so it was very much like you know there's three of us working in the archive and it's like we looked to we could pull magazines you know, we've got, we've got plenty to choose from. So, you know, we, we get Empire magazine to look at kind of this idea of the hero. And, you know, we can pull tons of Indiana Jones and, you know, the Terminator and, and all sorts of characters within film and popular culture. And then we were looking at old filming mags and looking at how has masculinity changed through film. And, and basically it was very much a visceral reaction to the covers and the content which made us choose what magazines should go into that exhibition because essentially I know I know the process of creating the magazine and all the paperwork and everything that you know. And an makes, academic would
2: ruin that wouldn't yeah, will we'll He that, or she would ruin that as Makes that object
1: yeah and so well and makes that into that object but essentially this was the object that went out to the masses and we were essentially that's who we would try that's who we were talking to because it, you know, in terms of footfall for that exhibition we really wanted to have these reactions that were instant you know we didn't have a lot of time for people to really engage and you know it wasn't an exhibition you paid to go into so we, that was our process for that exhibition because it was very much you know we need to communicate with the public we want it to be instant we want them to go oh my god like look at that look at Kanye West on the cross you know like Jesus on that Rolling Stone magazine you know and look at a Blitz cover that is also very taken the same the same image and done something very similar and um that was that was very much that our approach to that exhibition. But then we've done other exhibitions where we're really looking at the, the research side, and we, we have to go. We have to look a little bit deeper. I did an exhibition at Somerset House um, on the Jam. And, you know, and they had an archive that they'd been collecting, but what we were trying to find is stuff that they didn't have. Yeah. And also when people collect, for example, it was very much Nikki Weller that was collecting on behalf of her son, obviously, because she's, you know, she's... Um, Sorry, not Nikki. Well, Nikki and Ann, Nikki Annan, uh, sister and mother, and also um, they ran the Jam fan club. But they were collecting from a different place. They were collecting from their heart, you know. That and so they would create scrapbooks. But the, but in the process of creating those scrapbooks, they they ripped the front cover of the first Jam enemy cover that they had and, and they folded it up and they put it in and wrote some things on it going like, you know, look at my brother, I'm so proud. And we had, we displayed those scrapbooks but what we also were able to find was an immaculate edition of that, that, of that enemy. So it was kind of it was uh, the conversation between those two objects actually told a different story. You know, this is what everyone saw if they were, you know, buying the enemy on a weekly basis and then this is what the sister and the mother did to that cover. So thing. you're
2: interested in the interplay between the uh, the personal and the private world.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it changes.
2: I noticed that with John Peel's uh,
1: record mm-hmm, collection that yeah. he, uh, he, yeah.
2: he annotated the. Um, I've forgotten what the middle of it's called now, all these years. The middle Isn't of a it? record. No, the middle oh. of a record. Runoff, the label in the middle. I can't remember now. God, I had so many of them as well. That bit in the middle, the mm-hmm. round bit, mm-hmm. he used to annotate, you know, like cross. I think, oh, what did he use crosses or something? And then, mm-hmm. and then you see his teenage kicks, the undertones, and it's just it's the entire really record the covered in everything.
1: Yeah.
2: And then the fall, of course. I found that quite interesting. And there are people who meta-collect. There are people who collect collections.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. So I guess it changes, yeah, for, for And then when
2: you're talking about masses, I mean, you know, we're not really in a mass society anymore, are we, I guess, because we know pretty much... People's, we can guess pretty much using software and online world, what people's political affiliations are, what Mm. the reactions to things will be and so on. But in true mass society, say in the thirties, where you only had, um, you know, you had limited means, you know, you had a radio or you had the cinema or you had political flyers. I think those things, I think those things, I mean, I sold 150 Spanish civil war flags and banners to a meta collector and I think that those things, things about mass society in the 30s, 40s and 50s, I think that people will look back with, with awe mm-hmm. that you had such a thing as a mass society where people didn't really know each other, mm-hmm. you know, across the world and didn't know anything about each other and there was no confluence between people's beliefs. You didn't actually know what other people were like and you had to take a guess on it mm-hmm. and that there was left and right affiliation. So I think political ephemera, mm-hmm. I think that that will be... That will always be there. I think, I think music looks like it's going to be there forever. It's the food of you know, food of love and so on. But I think politics is, you know, if, if I dare say it, we are homo politicus. You know, and I think that politics and collecting political things will will get bigger and bigger. There, I have yeah. predicted something, and I, I'll probably be wrong.
1: I'm I'm just quite interested in how you value objects, like what your process is. Uh,
2: well, because
1: um, uh, <laughs> that to me is just something I. You know, well, you
2: could do it. You could move from where you are yeah. to the next stage, and I'm sure that's come up. Yeah. I mean, every collector, you know, always like they always toy. I'm sure they always toy with that I'm idea of uh, not just insurance valuation, yeah. but you know, if yeah. we did sell this, you know, say we did, we're not going to, but say we yeah. did, what would it be worth? You know, it's a great game, yeah. And I, and I love that game, not because I'm greedy and because I'm obsessed with money, but it it tells you something about. Sadly, it reminds me of, you know, the Little Prince where he meets this planet of men, you know, and and this planet has a name and, you know, has a number, and therefore it's more, you know, it's more serious than his planet, which doesn't have a number, you know. And sadly, that's the way we are. And so for me, I love the process of doing valuation Mm -hmm. because it helps me to understand intrinsically, you know, the social and economic construction of something in our society. Sorry, I'm getting to sound like a 1970s Trotskyite undergraduate at the LSE, but...
1: That's just what I was thinking. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Deadly dull. But, you know, I love it. I love it because, you know, and what you do is you use compradores, you know, you find things. It's a comparison game, which I guess will become more and more automated, you know, because it becomes more and more transparent.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I, people like me will become superfluous, I would have thought, in you 50 know. years or something.
1: I mean, because there are some, you know, in certain uh, publishers, there are the archivists that have been there for years and they know everything. Sure. And then the, the the idea of things being digitised and, you know, the, the the way the management systems are working and everything, it scares the hell out of them in terms of the fact that they hold everything here. You yeah. know, it becomes like it's natural, you know, and if they were to, to leave, then, well, you know, the, the department a, might fall apart and, like...
2: Those people are both a blessing and a, and a curse in yeah, some exactly. ways.
1: Yeah, you exactly. Know? they I mean, yeah, it's,
2: But I think that, you know, what you have now is you don't really have archivists and librarians like that now. You have you know, especially as a new generation and the older generation really do get it. They're on a long clock, you know, that so they don't believe that you can predict what's going to happen in the future and what's going to be important, either academically or in economic terms or significant or whatever. But they gamble on things, mm-hmm. you know, they're gambling that in 100 years time, all this weird stuff they've bought off me might be important, you know, mm-hmm. and that to some extent, I guess, with Harvard's being substantiated because they're most accessioned items, in the entire library network of Harvard, which is huge. Their most accessioned items are Julio Santo Domingo's drug library. I mean everything in it.
1: I guess for us we are we need to feel like that we can answer questions to the copyright holders who actually essentially own the archive and we need to make that promise that we are preserving what they've done and, 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 you know, for years to come and that we aren't, you know, a Google image search engine which will abuse their rights and their content, perfect, perfect. you know, so that's our main challenge at the moment because um, we guess we're going against the wave of mass dissemination of people's work and um, the abuse of content. So it's basically being able to make that promise sincerely because um, it is something that we, you know, we haven't been doing this for six years to um, do anything but preserve the content through digitisation and also the preservation of the physical. And also my biggest dream is to have a magazine museum um, because I do feel, you know, that there's a space in London, there's an audience that will enjoy and appreciate and um, visit en masse, a place which celebrates... Our culture, popular culture, unashamedly. You know, we love what we love, and let's celebrate that rather than, um, you know, trying to be too highbrow and, you know, and pretend that the other things are important. You know, let's. I think there's a place for that against all the amazing institutions that London already has. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the Pod
0: at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DN Co project for White City Place, produced by David Nishon, recorded by Antonio Fernandez, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, visit us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at White City Place, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, ACast and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.